you've worked with a lot of freelancers. If a freelancer is between writing blog posts or designing logos, uh, but they want that flexibility, shouldn't they be able to have it? Absolutely not. The American dream is false in America. Hi, everybody. So I wanted to take a moment to talk about Liberty Dad. I also happen to call him a lightweight, okay? And I have said that, so I would like to take that back. He's really not that much of a lightweight. It is not enough to talk about liberty. One must believe in it. It is not enough to believe in liberty. One must work at it. It is not enough to work at liberty. One must convince others likewise. Reimagining how we do politics. Welcome to Liberty Dad. Welcome to Episode 9 of Liberty Dad Podcast, where we reimagine how we do politics by exploring a different approach. I'm your host, DL. This week's show is Battle of Blurred Visions, where I pick apart a segment of another podcast. But first, I have great news, and this time, accurate great news. Liberty Dad is not only on a hosting service, but on various podcast listing services. This includes iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, along with a few others. I'm still working on getting listed on Stitcher, but I have confirmed this show is listed on all of those other services that I mentioned, so make sure to tell your friends. This show is longer than expected, so I'm skipping the bill review as a means to get caught up. Let's get into the show. Hey everyone, here's the deal. I got a little behind, and I'm playing catch-up. That means I'm backdating the show as I get them produced, until I get caught up. Episode 9 was intended to be a follow-up on Jeers to Cheers, where I discuss how everyday Americans are contributing to the division in politics. If you didn't catch that episode, I discussed what really took Trump to the White House, at least in my opinion, and that would be the arrogance from the elite. This snobbish outlook on regular everyday Americans from people in power or positions of prominence. I also touched on how the Republican Party failed to deliver strong and competent leaders, which led to a thirst for someone who would punch back. And boy, did they get that someone. But as I was putting together the follow-up episode, I wasn't quite happy with how it was turning out. I was actually starting to sweat it a bit. Along the way... I came across a podcast episode that really piqued my interest. Episode 1029 of This Week in Startups, hosted by Jason, and I hope I say his last name correctly, Calacanis, invites David Heinermeyer Hansen, goodness, I'm not doing so well with names today, more commonly known in the developer community as DHH. The episode description reads, DHH debates Jason on reigning in capitalism benefits of state-run education and healthcare, big tech disappointments, work-from-home paradigm shift, wealth tax, and more. I'll link to the video version of the episode in the show notes, but let me tell you, this episode is over two hours long, and there's no way I'm going to be able to unpack all of it in today's show. I'm performing a little bit of cheap voodoo here. Since I'm behind, the show wouldn't have come out on the 10th of February, and the episode from This Week in Startup the podcast that I'm kind of taking a little small segment out, it didn't happen until the 18th. So if anyone is listening and catches that discrepancy, I'm totally cheating. So there. Okay, this week in startups. Since I can't discuss it all, and because the show is reimagining how we do politics, 
I want to slice out a section. And I want to focus on that and what I think underlies, at least partially, many of DHH's socioeconomic arguments. Let's play a short clip. If you go listen or watch the whole show, which I highly recommend you do, it's very, very interesting. I'm starting at the 35 minute and 52 second mark. And then I'm playing until around the 40 minute and nine second mark. So just a little over four minutes. So let's play that clip. Perfect segue, you were lamenting the gig worker economy um, and that they're being exploited. I'm curious if you look at, you know, uh, being a, a ride sharing driver or delivering food as an entry level, you know, I'm going to work at 20 hours a week and make whatever, 12 to $20 an hour, depending on how busy it is. Do you have a problem with that or do you have a problem with it starts to tip over into full time, they should get benefits? Because it seems to me like these jobs have already existed and nobody complained about them. But if Uber, Lyft and DoorDash become large companies, then all of a sudden it's like, well, this feels unfair. Well, it's just exploitation on an industrial scale. And I think there are many problems here. One problem is that no one is taking home after expenses 12 to 20 bucks an hour. There's been numerous studies on this. Basically, everything hinges on the fact that you convince gig workers to run down the assets that they have. You convince them to run down the asset like their car, defer maintenance, um, defer uh, depreciation, basically not dealing with any of the costs of actually providing the service. And so e even in the best of cases, or I don't even know if it's a best case, even in the case where someone just works 10 hours a week because they want to make some extra cash, is utterly exploitive. The fact that gig workers are not being paid for their expenses, the fact that they're not being paid while they're waiting between jobs. I saw one study just come out, was it last week, about the fact that uh, Uber and Lyft are majorly contributing to um, congestion in cities, to, to traffic, because 40% of the time spent working for these apps are spent without passengers in the car. And those 40% of that hours, they're not being paid for that hours. You're so like, if a freelancer though, I mean, you, you've worked with a lot of freelancers. If a freelancer is between writing blog posts or designing logos, uh, but they want that flexibility, shouldn't they be able to have it and be 1099? I, I, think, th I think they're- Or can only rich people a, be 1099? A, sure. But I think there's just a material categorical difference between someone who's making uh, essentially no money after you account for expenses um, or whether that makes up for it or not. Everyone I've ever known who've done consulting in tech, mm -hmm. they don't charge like what a full-time worker would get paid per hour. They charge, what, three, five, ten times as much because they know that the job and the income is lumpy. So you might yeah. have a great contract here for, for a month that's full-time, great. But you've got to make essentially three months' pay to to fill up your funnel and, and, and deal with that. So it's just not at the same scale. I think that the fundamental underlying issue here is that uh, gig workers, as you say, they should be paid 15, 20 bucks an hour after expenses, accounting for time spent servicing the platform. And that includes the time driving from dropping off one patron to, to picking up the next. Yeah, um, I think now and I Uber think is doing that. They, they, they pay for that time, but I don't think they pay for the wait time. And there's a minimum now uh, with the 50 cents an hour or whatever, uh, 50 cents a mile fees. So I don't think you're correct in that they're making under what would be minimum wage in any case, because how, why would millions of people then choose those jobs, David, if 
there's so many other jobs that are looking. Like, why would you choose to do this they're, if there are not. so many out this there? Is, this, is, this is desperation. When you have some, it's kind of like, why would anyone ever get a payday loan? You know what the interest rates are in payday loans? They're outrageous. Why would anyone ever do it? This is a multi-billion dollar industry. When you have an asset like a car and you need cash, sometimes you will look at that equation and go, do you know what? It may be I'm deferring maintenance. It may be I'm running down my asset, but that's tomorrow. Today, I need 80 bucks. So I'm going to drive for Uber or Lyft or DoorDash, even if on the long or scale- Or all three. I mean, they're, most people yeah, are usually three. multiple. Yeah. Or, or, and, and then on the long scale, I'm not going to make any money, but the long scale just doesn't matter. Tomorrow matters. Paying the bill that's due now matters. Uh, picking up groceries matter. And this is kind of the precar- or, or preying on the precarious that I find just so disappointing. Whew. That's a lot to unpack. Where do we even start? Okay, let me back up just a little bit. If you don't know who Jason is, he is the host of the show, for starters, and he's an American internet entrepreneur, angel investor, and author, and DHH is the uh, inventor of Ruby on Rails, which is a web development platform that a lot of developers, myself included, are very familiar with and use um, either professionally or on the side or both. And he also happens to be a, a notable race car driver, but honestly, I don't really know much about the, uh, the ventures that he has in that particular area. At any rate, okay, so let's start with this comment, he says. He said, this is desperation. He says this in response to Jason's question about why so many people would choose these crummy jobs when there are better options out there. And then DHH, or, or David if you want rather, he goes on to suggest that people just need money to pay the bills or, you know, 80 bucks. You know, whatever whatever it is they need money for. And so they decide to go for a drive. They're, they're going to go out and work for Uber for today and disregard the future. And they're disregarding any concern for, say, the wear and tear on their assets or the many other costs that are not being directly paid for. And this is very fundamental to his argument on why he believes companies like Uber and Lyft are exploiting workers. My next comment here isn't going to be very poignant. But here it goes. So what? See, I told you, not very poignant. But think about it. Who is he to tell me why I might choose to enter into the gig economy? I've ridden Uber many times, as many others have. I often ask how long they've been driving, what got them started, and how they like it. It's a really great icebreaker for me when I meeting somebody and I don't know anything else about them to ask. Almost always, the answer is something like several months to a couple years, and yes, they love it. The reasons they start, they tend to vary. Occasionally, I hear about how the pay has dropped or a driver used to make more money and how they need to drive for both Uber and Lyft to make it worthwhile. They always seem to circle back and make sure to tell me how much they enjoy it. And as Jason pointed out multiple times, they enjoy the agency of working when it fits their schedule. But here's the thing, and it seems very hard for some people to accept. It's none of his business or mine how or why someone chooses to spend their time or their resources. I choose to spend my time producing this podcast. Outside of my immediate family, my beautiful wife and my very adorable son, it's nobody else's business. This show isn't currently being monetized, but I do have future plans to do so. 
But even if I didn't, if I just wanted to use my time, money, and whatever equipment I have to produce this show, it's my choice and for whatever reason. This is the point where libertarians get a really bad reputation. It sure sounds like I'm suggesting I don't care about other people, as if I'm morally okay with a company exploiting workers. Now let me digress for just a moment. What I would agree is exploitation, and what those like David and others would agree is probably not even in the same ballpark. And if you listen to the whole show, you'll certainly see what I mean. He gives you plenty of examples to illustrate the differences between him and I on what we consider to be exploitation. The short version has largely to do with how I see transactions between two or more parties. When the transaction is consensual, all terms are known, and each party decides they are better off, the transaction is likely not exploitive. I I have a note to explore that concept further, but let's get back to today's topic. Even if I think a transaction should be legal, that doesn't mean I find it morally acceptable or even a good idea. Let's use a more socially challenging example, sex work. In libertarian philosophy, the right of self-ownership is paramount. If a woman wishes to sell the service of her body to another person, that is her expression of self-ownership. In the very same way, a woman who chooses to only provide the service of her body within the confines of marriage. Let's be a little bit more straight to the point. Both have chosen under what terms they will engage in sexual activity. I have a son, but for the sake of continuity here, if I had a daughter and she grew up to be a sex worker, I would be disappointed. I would wholeheartedly respect her choice, and by that, I mean she would always be welcome at home, and I would provide the same love and support as I would if she were a doctor, lawyer, or a trade worker. Eh, you know, okay, maybe a little less. I mean, I certainly wouldn't ask how her day was. That would be awkward. Hopefully you see the demarcation line I'm trying to draw here. On one side, my moral preference, the rights of others on the other side. And when you blur that line, it becomes a battle of whose blurred vision gets enforced. And you'll see what I mean in just a few moments. DHH isn't here to defend his words. But in the podcast, he comes across strongly disregarding the distinction between his moral preference and the rights of others to associate on agreed-upon terms. If it's just commentary, no big deal. It's good to explore and vigorously debate ideas, sometimes even repeatedly. Things become problematic when someone tries to impose their moral preference on others. And we see this happening in all the various debates on wages. And DHH has clearly positioned himself on the side of interference. In January, he tweeted the following. Any gig worker app that cannot make the business model while paying $15 an hour after expenses, including basic benefits, vacation time, and family leave, should not exist. Running a modern-day surf economy behind a slick UI is disgraceful. And just in case you're not familiar, UI is lingo for user interface. He also takes a jab at us libertarians in a follow-up tweet saying, To all the libertarian hacks coming back with 
but gig workers choose to take these jobs. Ergo, they're fine. Please listen to episode 95 of Citations Needed. I'll post the link to that show in the show notes, but I mention it as it's how people perceive libertarians, and we are largely responsible for our reputation. Remember, the point of this show is to reimagine how we do politics. Though I don't own my reputation, I play the biggest role in shaping it. And one of the things we need to do as libertarians is start acknowledging our role in how people see us. Here, the perception is that since someone else made a choice, us libertarians can just wash our hands and move on, knowing our duty to preserve liberty is done. And if someone suffers, how oh well, liberty. But that's garbage. What libertarians are doing when they make arguments about people making a choice is they're drawing a line between their preference and the rights of others. Again, it's a matter of self-ownership. If you listen further into the show, you see DHH snubbing that very concept. I feel DHH has blurred that line between moral preference and others' rights. The intro hook is a mashup of some out-of-context statements that he made throughout the show. For example, at 46 minutes and 34 seconds, he proposes that he knows better than what blue-collar workers want and that they don't want the same things as white-collar workers. Then at 47 minutes and 27 seconds, he calls the idea that blue-collar workers want and use these platforms to achieve similar goals as what white-collar workers seek. He calls that freedom and agency a, quote, idealized version of people living at the edge of precarity. Then later at 51 minutes and 34 seconds, he decries the American dream as false in America and then insists at 52 minutes and 54 seconds that if you grew up poor, you are likely to end up poor. Okay, that's enough. Let me stop right here, though, and point out a problem with the last few items. And then I want to tie them all together. Notable economist Thomas Sowell has researched this and written various books and articles on the matter. In a March 3, 2013 article, he writes the following. Those social scientists, journalists, and others who are committed to the theory that social barriers keep people down often cite statistics showing that the top income brackets receive a disproportionate and growing share of the country's income. But the very opposite conclusion arises in studies that follow actual flesh-and-blood individuals over time, most of whom move up across the various income brackets with the passing years. Most working Americans who were initially in the bottom 20% of the income earners rise out of that bottom 20%. More of them end up in the top 20% than remain in the bottom 20%. People who were initially in the bottom 20% in income have had the highest rate of increase in their incomes, while those who were initially in the top 20% have had the lowest. This is the direct opposite of the pattern found when following income brackets over time rather than following individual people. DHH abstractly cites study after study that he's read. I don't know what studies he's citing, but the arguments he makes are the same arguments made by those who follow the statistical studies that Dr. Sowell mentions. Again, just to be clear, 
What Seoul is saying is that while a specific income bracket may receive more or less of the income in a country, that doesn't tell us about mobility for actual flesh and blood people, most who migrate from one bracket to another. I don't recall which book of his I read, but one goes into significantly more detail. Okay, let's start tying this together a bit, shall we? All these comments support, I believe, the idea that David is blurring the line between his moral preferences and the rights of others. The comments about the poor, the American dream, exploited workers, what blue-collar workers want, they all have one thing in common. They rest on an outcome that he doesn't like. And this is where libertarians differ and where we often shoot our own selves in the foot. We have a tendency to put so much effort into promoting the idea of self-ownership and rights and other things that the opportunity to make a decision that you feel is best for you, and remember my example of the two women who chose how they use their bodies, we put so much effort into that, we leave out two critical components. One, that we might actually think poorly of the transaction, and then two, that if we override the right of someone to make a choice they feel is in their best interest, we are telling them we know better on what they need and what choices they should be presented. And that, my friends, is obscenely more immoral than an agreement between parties for reasons I don't prefer. That is the message libertarians should be working to deliver. One more thing, and then we're going to wrap this up. Earlier, I mentioned that when the line between moral preference and others' rights is blurred, it becomes a battle of whose blurred vision gets enforced. Let me give you a great example. In May of last year, DHH announced that his company, Basecamp, had a minimum salary of $70,000, regardless of role or location. He's really big on remote work. His company has a little over 50 people. But for my example, let's assume that he has exactly 50 and they all make exactly $70,000. It's obviously different, but again, for simplicity. In just the salaries alone, no benefits, that's a total of $3.5 million annually in worker compensation, salary compensation. Again, we're speaking only salaries here. Remember that tweet of his I read? The one that said a gig worker app that cannot pay at least $15 an hour after expenses and with basic benefits and vacation time and family leave should not exist? Well, imagine a tweet that said this. Any technology company between 50 and 75 employees that cannot add three more full-time employees who make a minimum of $50,000 after expenses with basic benefits, vacation time, and family leave should not exist. <laughs> you might say, DL, Liberty Dad, you can't possibly think that forcing a company to hire three more people and adding $150,000 to their payroll is reasonable. Well, I say, why not? How is that any different than demanding a company pay its workers a minimum of $15 an hour any different? In fact, I would argue my idea is more moral than even his. Here's how it works. In my hometown of Richmond, Indiana, 
the median household income is $29,802. Imagine what having $50,000 would be like. It's not exactly top shelf wealth, but it's sure a lot better than the median. And consider this. In response to Jason asking if blue-collar workers shouldn't have access to agency like their white-collar counterparts, DHH says it's a fallacy that they want freedom to choose and flexibility. And he poses this question, and I'm paraphrasing here. If you ask these people, would you rather have the flexibility to set your own hours, or would you rather be paid, say, 15 bucks an hour, have benefits, and an expectable schedule? They'd say, of course, I love those things. Well, great. We're getting somewhere now. Here's my question. If you ask, would you rather have a job making 50000 or zero, what would you choose? Of course, they would choose the 50000 And here's where my idea challenges the morality of his. I'm not asking him to increase his budget for salaries. Nope. In my contrived version of his company, he has 50 employees who make 70000 each. All he needs to do is reduce the salaries of 15 of those workers by $10,000. And he has the 150000 to pay three additional employees, 50000 each. Now again, we're only discussing salaries, and it's a contrived example. But do you see the point? In David's worldview, it's contemptible that companies are not paying their workers $15 an hour. And so they should not exist. Which, by the way, would mean that someone making $14 an hour would drop to zero if that company did not exist. In my view, I think his company has hired too few employees and should restructure in order to hire more workers. Remember, I'm looking to see, would you rather have 50000 or zero? And that is what I mean when I say, when you blur that line, it's a battle of whose vision gets enforced. A final word. None of this was meant to disparage DHH in any way. I used him as an example because I felt it illustrated issues with his argument in a fantastic way. I would absolutely abhor any attempt to impose someone's preference on how he chooses to hire or the salary ranges he feels are appropriate for his company. His work with Ruby on Rails, a web development platform, has been a great boost for me. And given what I've seen of his personality, if he ever heard this episode, I know he is more than able to take the criticism. Also, he probably won't be hiring me anytime soon. Or ever. But hey, that's the risk I take to deliver you this show. So folks, I hope you enjoyed the show and got something out of it. Be sure to find me on Liberty Dad or Liberty Dad Podcast on Facebook or on Twitter at DL underscore Liberty Dad and let me know what you think. And now, I'll catch you next time. Stay out of trouble or get into lots of it, and I'm out.